patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone, and welcome to episode 97 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Talosky. Thank you all so much for joining me this week. Hope you are enjoying your summer so far. Looking forward to the upcoming 4th of July weekend. I don't know how long that your weekend is going to be, but hopefully it's long and enjoyable for you. We'll be having a an interview episode and a reading of the Declaration of Independence in the following episode. So make sure to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. Subscribe to our email list if you want to get some updates on some latest news. We'll certainly have some upcoming announcements later this summer. This episode was by accident, similar to the episode that I did a few months ago when I spoke about that as teach school teacher from Massachusetts who explained the importance of phonetics and for kids to really get that experience interacting with other students. This was obviously way back in the 1800s, but it certainly played some kind of connection between that era and the era which we are living today, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 shutdowns and schools. For this episode, I was actually researching some travel plans. Later this summer, I'll be going through Tennessee. I'm thinking of doing a couple of trips or seeing a couple of sites there. And I was interested in looking at any sites that related to Andrew Jackson and James Polk, two very prominent Tennessee heroes. While I was looking at President Polk's administration, I accidentally came across someone who I never thought would teach me anything about uh, politics or about civics at all. (laughs) He doesn't have the most original name either, which probably would not have grasped my attention somewhere else. Well, the reason why I came across is because he served in President Polk's administration. Now, you might be wondering, well, what is this great policy or this great accomplishment from this gentleman that we read about? Well, I can tell you that this episode is not about anything related to a policy achievement. In fact, it was actually because of the rejection of a particular constitution that prompted me to make this episode And one that I think is going to bring a lot of value to yourself and perhaps a lot of value to our civic environment today. Born in Pennsylvania in 1801, Robert J. Walker was an early admirer and perhaps a very promising Democrat politician. He was a pretty young person when Andrew Jackson came around the 1820s, running for president in 1824, lost to John Quincy Adams, but ultimately helped create the Democratic Party. And I would credit Andrew Jackson as that kind of de facto founder of the Democratic Party. Walker was someone who really believed in the power of the law. He was a lawyer, worked uh, up the ladder, I guess, I guess you could say, for the Democratic Party, and ultimately in American politics in general. He was a prominent pro-slavery politician. He really believed in the idea of states' rights, just like Andrew Jackson. He eventually moved to Mississippi and eventually was elected 
the United States senator and, and was served as a senator from 1835 to 1845. He was particularly in, involved in the Mexican-American War, which eventually added more land, more territory to the United States, and eventually was part of that pro-slavery cause. He was very pro-slavery, was not afraid to express those views. Um, he was also very much and very important with the nomination election of President Polk. And because of his involvement with the election in 1844, he eventually served as the uh, Treasury Secretary under James Polk from 1845 to 1849. Polk was a president who created a lot of different uh, proposals, but particularly agencies. If you think of the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian was created under him. The Department of the Interior interestingly, was actually an idea of Robert Walker. And Walker was very, very involved in the 1849 bill to create this new department. So the next time, I guess, if you go to the National Park or if you go, if you step on any federal land, which I'm sure there are plenty, there's plenty, depending on which state you're in, uh, you can probably think of Robert Walker as, as the benefactor or the founder of the Department of the Interior. Walker just felt like everything was going right. I mean, when you're serving as the Treasury Secretary under a one-term president, one-term president, but one who was very, very popular and one who I think was highly respected in the Democratic Party and across the country for the most part, he probably felt things were going great. And he even was offered a post as the U.S. Minister to China for uh, under President Pierce, you would think that Walker had the ideal political career, in the at least in the Democratic Party. Well, in 1854, one of the most controversial, probably the worst legislation was put out. It was called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which I've mentioned several times in this podcast. But basically, it allowed Kansas and Nebraska territories to decide whether or not they wanted to be a slave state or a free state. And it sounded great. And Stephen Douglas, who created the legislation, probably felt the same way, but it just resulted in so much violence and tension ahead of uh, these elections, or the really, I, I say elections, but they're really just very fraught contests. You know, they're really not having a whole lot of legitimacy, really being seen by both sides. Either side, both sides were accusing each other of rigging votes and trying to essentially intimidate the other side. And the reason why Walker kind of comes into play here is because he had gotten so much political capital that in, under the new president, James Buchanan, he was offered the position as the governor of Kansas. Walker took on a position that was incredibly important for the Democratic Party because this is obviously an opportunity to expand slavery. And James Buchanan in short, had that philosophy that that we that the United States had to preserve the institution of slavery in order to keep the country together. Walker, even though he was pro-slavery, had some different views, though. As governor of Kansas, he undertook a very, very difficult job. Remember, he was seeing all this happen, all this violence unfolding. And what happened was that 
because there was so much tension that and, and so much disarray that Kansas had to adopt a new constitution and it had to adopt a state constitution, but the problem with slavery just kept coming back. Eventually, there were four different constitutions that were placed in elections and were supposed to be placed to the people. One of these constitutions was called the Lecompton Constitution. The Lecompton Constitution is named for Lecompton, Kansas, which was where uh, these legislators were meeting to write this document. Unfortunately, the Lecompton Constitution was completely drafted by pro-slavery advocates, and the intention wasn't really to make things better or to you know add, the, add Kansas as a state that could have its own rights and have its own way of doing things. With these pro-slavery advocates, they knew they wanted to instill permanently slavery as an institution in Kansas. So they came up with this document and this constitution idea uh, that uh, the state would have a choice. It would either be a uh, have a constitution with slavery or a constitution with no slavery. To many people at the time, it sounded fair. It sounded like people had popular sovereignty. It sounded like people could choose their own path forward. It sounded like a good deal. Well, the problem was, was that the Constitution with no slavery option would not have made Kansas a free state at all. It simply would have banned future importation of slaves into Kansas, which would not have been enforceable anyway. I mean, th- just think about it. You can't have a territory so remote with so few people and to be able to control anything. So it just doesn't mean anything. It was kind of like, it's just a way to try and fool people, I would argue, trying to fool the people of Kansas into thinking that they're, they were choosing their destiny, when in fact, the whole idea was completely rigged. And it wasn't just the choices that were rigged. The referendum that was held on the Lecompton Constitution was overridden with fraud. We hear a lot about voter fraud and whatnot in, in in politics today. Well, voter fraud was definitely a real thing over at that time. Remember, with this kind of part of the country where it's still kind of a Wild West sort of environment, people just did whatever they could to try and swing a vote another. But in particular, with this effort, pro-slavery advocates were doing everything they could to undermine the will of the, the people of Kansas. They intimidate, threatened people with violence. They certainly attacked people who were anti-slavery. They probably bribed local and state politicians to try and, and you know advocate for the pro-slavery cause. This, this referendum was not even close to being democratic. And remember, Robert Walker is seeing all this unfold. As the governor of Kansas, he's supposed to uphold the law. He's supposed to make sure that things are going the right way. When he saw what was going on with the Lecompton Constitution and the things that the pro-slavery advocates were doing, he decided to take a stand. He knew that he had worked so long to get to where he is today, but he felt that this was completely against his values. Even as a pro-slavery Democrat, he felt that the will of the people was completely being suppressed by these pro-slavery activists and, I would say, thugs. 
And in a resignation letter to Mr. Lewis Cass, Lewis Cass was Secretary of State under President Buchanan, he decided to write a very compelling letter to Secretary Cass on the decision that he had to he felt he had to make during this very difficult time. After probably much contemplation and really just thinking about his future in in American politics at the time, he wrote a lengthy letter describing the reasons why he had to, he wanted to resign from the office of governor of the territory of Kansas. But it wasn't just a simple statement just saying I quit. It was a much lengthier explanation of not just the reason not just the Lecompton Constitution itself of how bad it was, but it was about how the Lecompton Constitution completely went against the fabric of American society and the reasons why America is the free country that it is today. While there are many elements to this letter, the main central theme that Walker touches upon is the idea of sovereignty. What is sovereignty? And and this is a really, really interesting concept because I think it's often misconceived as like the constitution or the, the way, just the way that power is delegated. But he does it in a very concise way. This is what he quotes from the pamphlet that he wrote in 1856. Under our Confederate system, sovereignty is that highest political power which, at its pleasure, creates governments and delegates authority to them. Sovereignty grants powers, but not sovereign powers. Otherwise, it might extinguish itself by making the creature of its will the equal or superior of its creator. Sovereignty makes constitutions and through them establishes governments. It delegates certain powers to these governments, distributing the exercise of the granted powers among the legislative, executive, and judicial departments. The constitution is not sovereign because it is created by sovereignty. The government is not sovereign for the same reason, much less any department of that government. Having defined sovereignty... We must not confound the power with its source or exercise. That is, sovereignty is one thing. Where it resides or how to be exercised is another. We'll stop there for a second. It's it's as much of a riddle as it kind of sounds, right? You know, throwing the word sovereignty around. I I had to read it a couple times myself. But what he is essentially saying is that you, you can't just say that, well, our body or our department or our position is sovereign and therefore we can do whatever we want. He, and he, what he says is that, no, that is not what sovereignty says. Sovereignty ultimately is like supreme power, right? Whichever is like kind of the last decision. And he says that, no, sovereignty is in itself a concept about supremacy of, of who makes that final decision on how things are run. But he's really challenging this idea that these delegates or these governments are declaring themselves sovereign. Now, okay, now now we're sovereign. Now we can tell people what to do. He said, no, 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 no. That's not what it says. The Constitution is not sovereign. The Constitution doesn't rule people. It cre- it sets rules for everybody else. But it ultimately, whoever exercises that power, whoever uses that sovereignty for public good, for the direction of a country or a state, 
is solely in somewhere else, not in a government department, but ultimately among the people. He goes on to say, Under the system of European despotisms, sovereignty was claimed to reside in kings and emperors under the sacrilegious idea of the divine right of kings. And the blasphemous doctrine was that sovereigns in legitimate succession, although stained with crimes and blackened with infamy, were clothed by deity with absolute power to rule their subjects, who held nothing but privileges granted by the crown. Such were the absurd and impious dogmas to which the people of Europe, with few exceptions, have been compelled to submit by the bayonet, sustained by the more potent authority of ignorance and superstition. Under this theory, the people were mere ciphers and crowned heads sub-deities, the sole representatives on earth of the governing power of the Almighty. Our doctrine is just the reverse, making the people the only source of sovereign power. But what people? With us, sovereignty rests exclusively with the people of each state. By the revolution, each colony acting for itself alone, separated from Great Britain, and sanctioned the Declaration of Independence, each colony having thus become a state, and each adopting for itself its separate state government, acted for itself alone under the old Continental Congress. I'm going to stop there for a second. So what he is saying is, this idea of sovereignty is a new concept that America revolutionized, because it used to be, as he thoroughly explained, People honestly thought that, well, because Charles II must have been must have come out from the act of God, you know, he's he was destined to rule, therefore he must be uh, must be king. He must be given all these powers. And what Walker's saying is that in this country we do things differently. We don't just go about and say, well, God gave me power, or oh, you know, I'm I'm I was born to do this, therefore give me all the powers to do this. Walker's like, no, 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 that's not what sovereignty in America is about. He said that in the Constitution, in the very framework in our country, the people of the states, this is very, very important, the people of the states have that sovereignty. So he's reminding these pro-slavery advocates, and, and that's just assuming that these people were even taught anything about civics. He's saying that you can't just go about telling people that you got to adopt this constitution. No, ultimately, if the people don't like your idea, then that's the final decision because it's ultimately up to the people. You don't have, and these people do not have any right to try and alter things, try to fool people because Walker is essentially seeing through what these uh, Lecompton constitution advocates are trying to do. They're, they're trying to dictate to people by giving people a false choice on some, some made up concept of sovereignty that they were that they were going to be able to impose this and he he just he wanted to call them out he wanted to call out every single opponent even within his party thinking that by dictating slavery as a policy forget the issue of slavery it's, it's so important obviously but just the fact that they were telling other people what to do without their consent that he said is un-american that is completely against the system of government that we have here in the United States. He really, it's really astounding when you see someone like 
Walker explained this. It reminds me a lot about really what's what's happening nowadays with the the leaked an opinion. And now it's not a final opinion, of course, but with that leaked opinion, it's really astounding to see how all these people are running around claiming that abortion is all of a sudden going to be vanquished or is going to n- not exist anymore. When in fact, the, there's state governments like California and New York and all and other states that are already crafting their own state policies. And what what I would say to to most Americans is to say, you know, let's setting the abortion issue on the side. This is exactly what what happens when the states, when the people of the states have that power, when they vote for people who create these ideas, whether you like them or not, it's, this is a whole different issue. But the fact is the power resides in the, in the people of each state. If we had stepped back years ago and we realized the value of teaching civics, if we stop to realize that teaching people the power of, of state powers, what each state can do, and their role in our politics today, if we just taught them, if we taught our kids and our students the significance and the history with states' rights, and, and the fact that you do need some kind of national unity, you need, ha- you need to have a U.S. Constitution, but the fact that we have things like the Ninth Amendment or the Tenth Amendment that essentially gave more power those those unnumerated powers to states that has to be a central part of our civics and we have really I think dropped the ball on our civics education with this element here. Walker goes on he he sp- explains really just the idea of how you know, you can't he he acknowledges that the president is is trying to make some kind of argument on, okay, this is, should be a decision on the slavery. And Walker just says he, he feels like the president and his supporters are just completely missing the issue. He's not saying that you know, slavery is not an issue. That's, that's not what Walker is arguing. What he's saying is it is much more than just the areas of policymaking and of legislation. It's this whole idea he felt that as governor of Kansas, in the positions that he held, he was sworn to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And he felt that this was completely undermining any ability for him to uphold that vow he made way, way back when he started serving in politics. He felt that with an overwhelming majority of Kansas of actually opposing this constitution, this Lecompton constitution, and another one as well. These were actually even sent to Washington D.C. They they were not passed, obviously, because partly because of the political backlash that representatives would have gotten. You know, given the fact that the overwhelming people of Kansas did not accept the Lecompton constitution or any other blatantly pro-slavery constitution, he felt that if this goes on as a precedent, this is going to re- completely rip up. The our idea of of states' rights and uh, the ability for the Constitution to be able to be upheld by any court, by anybody for them for that matter. This is what he said towards the end of his letter. I have said that the slavery question, as a practical issue, had disappeared from Kansas long before my arrival there, and the question of self-government 
has been substituted in its place. If Walker at the time probably would have listed almost virtually every other issue that would have been listed, whether it's economic, whether it's about security or agriculture or wherever, you can when you when you lose self-governance, it doesn't matter what issue it is, you completely lose the ability to govern. He called out the fraud that was being put out by the pro-slavery advocates to try and fool the people of Kansas into passing this constitution. He strongly felt that the federal government was making things worse, not better, with their intervention. This line probably is the the most crystal ball-like statement that I've ever seen in before the Civil War. This is what he writes. Indeed, disguise it as we may to ourselves. Under the influence of the present excitement, the facts will demonstrate that any attempt by Congress to force this Constitution upon the people of Kansas will be an effort to substitute the will of a small minority for that of an overwhelming majority of the people of Kansas. That it will not settle the Kansas question or localize the issue. That it will, I fear, be attended by civil war, extending perhaps throughout the Union, thus bringing this question back again upon Congress and before the people in its most dangerous and alarming aspect. Well, if that is not a prediction of what came about in just a few years' time after he wrote this, I don't know what does. I really appreciate how he uses this forceful language to say, if Congress tries to, quote-unquote, rectify this, He said, it is going to come back and bite you. And he was right. Unfortunately, it took four years of fighting to realize that Walker was right this entire time. And he ends with these final few sentences. And now be pleased to express to the president my deep regret as regards our unfortunate difference of opinion in relation to the Lecompton Constitution. And to say to him that, as infallibility does not belong to man, however exalted in intellect, purity of intention or position, yet if he has committed any errors in this respect, may they be overruled by a superintending providence for the perpetuation of our union and the advancement of the honor and interest of our beloved country. And now dissolving my fictional connection with your department, I beg leave to tender to you my thanks for your constant courtesy and kindness. Most respectfully, your obedient servant, R.J. Walker. What I like about this ending is that he doesn't accuse Buchanan of some evil dictator who is dummy, who doesn't know what he's doing, or just has no hope at all. He just says, you know, Mr. President, you and I have differences, and if we can't resolve these differences, then I can't serve in the capacity that I am in. And it seems like we've lost that kind of political courage nowadays. You know, when someone, with the system in place, you know, there's there's always these questions of whether someone should stay in office to try to fight the leadership and contend on the issues. And under Walker, and I agree with his principle. I think one needs to step down. You know, because when you when you have an election, when people vote for a president, they want that kind of leadership. And while you need, while president needs to have, I would argue, differing opinions on various issues to listen to all different sides, 
ultimately, especially with this issue of power and DC, um, it's it's not going to be rosy for the might for people who don't agree with the president. But I think when Walker stepped down, he I think found himself in a much larger coalition than maybe he would have felt. Stephen Douglas, the same man who pioneered the Kansas-Nebraska Act, supported the Union, did not support the Confederacy, did not he was one who wanted to try and compromise on slavery, but he knew that the Union was most important. And that's also what Walker highlighted at the end of his letter, the advancement of the honor and interests of our beloved country, but also hoping that Almighty God will oversee the perpetuation of our Union. Walker eventually was not as involved in Democratic Party politics and really just national politics in general. He continued to practice law, but he supported the Union during the Civil War. Kind of makes you wonder what he was thinking when he was watching all this happening. Just, just so, you know, imagine all the thoughts that he had, you know, seeing how all these events that he basically predicted, and he wasn't the only one, but, you know, who, who can really predict a civil war, a conflict? I'm sure a lot of people didn't want to think about it at the time. Robert Walker eventually died in Washington, D.C. on November 11th, 1869, so just a few years after the civil war ended. Uh, Walker County, Texas, initially was named his honor, but Imagine this, because of his support of the Union, the Texas legislature at the time took away that recognition and honored someone else named Samuel Walker. Walker, I think, is a, a very remarkable person. Despite the views that he had on slavery, he knew he was one to really see the forest from the trees. He also knew that the functionality of the United States is not on the issues by issue by issue, because you know issue priorities come and go, you know depending on the times, right? But he knew that the the way that a country functions is more important because the way that a country functions will dictate the trajectory and be be the engine that gives people a voice in politics. I feel that. With, uh, with lack of civics education or the limited civics education that we have nowadays, it's not that this is not an intelligence, you know, jeopardy sort of idea of, okay, well, well, the failure of civics is that we don't have smart people. I don't hold that view. I think there's a lot of potential amongst the American people. It's the fact that without knowledge of civics, one cannot exercise sovereignty amongst the people of the states. That is what knowledge and civics do. They don't give you, they don't create the actions, right? Like you don't, you don't just learn about civics and then all of a sudden just expect things to come out or things to improve. You learn civics, you apply them into the things that you say and do, and that's when you see the effects of change. Of course, that has to be multiplied across you know, all different kinds of sectors and populations in the state and across the country. But I, I hope that you've learned something today from Robert J. Walker, someone who I honestly did not know anything about, but someone, this is actually now one of my favorite documents of the Civil War era because it shows that people had courage 
to speak out and to do the right thing for themselves and for the country by stepping down. Just like history, politics is not linear. People would have predicted that Robert Walker would have gone far and beyond in democratic politics and American politics, but he found that time when he knew he had to step down. I believe stepping down from power is not necessarily a a demotion or a, a repudiation of one's policies and legislation. Perhaps it can mean something different. Perhaps it can mean that a, a politician wants to do something different, do what's best for the national interest, and join a, another coalition that eventually prevailed, this pro-union coalition that was not just made of Republicans and people who loved President Lincoln. It was made up of, of so many different people who had different views but who knew that the country had to be kept as a union, not as two separate countries. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode about Robert J. Walker. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure, and once again, to subscribe if you haven't already. Have a great rest of your day and great upcoming 4th of July weekend. Remember, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.